welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora. I'm David Valencourt, resident GMP and standards expert and your lead moderator for today's podcast. As you can tell, slightly different voice, we're switching things up. So let me start off by introducing some familiar faces and uh, voices, aka our panelists. So to start, as usual, we've got Dr. Nigam Aurora. If you're a new listener or maybe not familiar with Dr. Aurora, he advises multi-state and multinational companies as well as psychedelic manufacturers and venture capital firms on translating science into business decisions as the co-founder at Marku and Aurora. He's also the co-founder and CEO of Aramark Therapeutics, a drug development company that is targeting inflammatory diseases and leads policy discussions for many other organizations, including, of course, this very podcast. Nigam, good to see you. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here. Yeah. And, you know, the podcast would not be the same without Dr. Jehan Marku, the other half of the Marku and Aurora leadership team. Uh, Jehan has been applying his knowledge on the endocannabinoid system for I'm pretty sure over 20 years now, um, advising regulatory bodies, serving as expert witnesses, and uh, doing lots of writing and educating, um, you know, publishing and co-publishing uh, dozens I have not kept track, perhaps you have or ResearchGate has, of articles on cannabinoids and psychedelics. Uh, how's it going over there on the East Coast, Jehan? It's going well. Hey, everybody. Uh, great to be here. Again, looking forward to another of your wonderful uh, podcast days. I'm sure it'll meet the highest standard possible. So we'll check which standard. Uh, we'll have to check back in on that. Um, and so listeners, you know, I'm really excited to introduce our guest panelists today. Um, certainly last but not least, we've got Dr. Jillian Schauer joining us today. Um, Jillian is the executive director for the Cannabis Regulators Association, also uh, known as CANRA. CANRA is a nonpartisan association of government agencies that regulate cannabis and hemp across, as of last check, I believe, 45 states and U.S. territories. Um, prior to her leadership at CANRA, she spent more than a decade working with federal agencies, including the CDC and National Institutes of Health on cannabis-related policy, research, and public health. She holds a PhD in behavioral science and a master's in public health. Uh, thanks so much for extending your long day of flight travel and uh, being here to join and speak with us. So happy to be here. It's an honor, and this is an important topic, so I wouldn't miss it. I would not disagree. Um, you know, and so listeners, um, we have an amazing show for you today, as always. Um, you know, just like hemp-derived products that are flooding the marketplace and putting consumers at risk, I can't guarantee this episode will meet the standard of non-intoxicating. Not sure if we even have a standard on that, but save that for later. Um, but it will be fun and educational nonetheless. So as you can imagine, we're going to dive into all things cannabis today. This is the industry of cannabis. Um, what does that mean? Well, again, it kind of is quite wide and varied, um, and it's so vast that, you know, the next hour, I hope we'll shed some light on that for you. So to just kind of go over what to expect today on this podcast, our first part, we'll kick off with a game that will test our panelists as well as your own critical thinking skills and knowledge on today's topic. Um, after that, we'll dive into some hot news topics, which... There never seems to be any shortage of, but uh, today's latest news is the ongoing saga of whether or not the FDA has the responsibility or authority to regulate hemp products. Um, specifically, CBD was a lot of the conversation, but uh, recognizing this really spans any product containing cannabinoids, which teased me up to the third half of the show, which 
always, as always, dives into our peer-reviewed article section. And uh, this article, for the first time ever, looks at some of these hemp-derived products and uh, discusses what is actually in them. So um, maybe you will or won't be surprised, but the results don't quite line up with what's on the label of many of these um, unregulated products. And these are products that are probably available down the street from uh, you listening right now. Perhaps you're driving by a convenience store and they are there. With that, we're gonna take a break so you can get your game face on for our first part of the show. Welcome back, listeners. Um, I am really excited to dive into the game. Um, we're going to be giving away a lot of points today, depending on how well our panelists do. So make sure you're keeping track at home and uh, come join and play along. So for this game, um, we've got I've got two different games here. Uh, they're both going to be true-false. Um, so we're going to just roll with this because I, I'll be honest, I was listening to some of the podcasts earlier preparing for the game and to try to compete with what Jayhan pulls off. Um, I don't know. That, it's a tall order. So true. Is the answer true? Did I get it right? <laughs> Sounds true to me. I, I believe in that one. All right. You got a bonus hundred points. That's like the uh, initial bonus question that you had to figure out was being asked. Great job. So we've got 100 points for Jihad. Uh, in all seriousness, uh, this game is going to be looking at news article titles. And uh, what I want to know is, is this a true news article title or is it false? And for a little bit of context, I will uh, share a bit of the story if needed um, to help you make your decision. But yeah, so we'll just kind of go around. Um, I will bounce between a different person each time that gets to start off and share your answer why you think it's true or false and uh we'll see where we end up are my panelists ready oh yeah ready born ready dave perfect so first article title true or false a legal marijuana dispensary with surf shop meets weed shop vibes is coming to town which town by the way because if it's in like omaha it's not true <laughs> it is on the east coast oh it's true then see i tricked him <laughs> yeah i would say true also okay mm, can you read that can you read it one more yeah. time yeah so um a legal marijuana dispensary with surf shop meets weed shop vibes is coming to town so surf shop meets weed shop vibes i guess it's like you know, just a theme. You know, I want to say false because, you know, dispensaries are really limited in the themes they can have. You can't have like a Star Wars themed dispensary or like, you know, uh, I don't even think you can have like a pediatric themed dispensary. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I wonder though, you know, if it's just a flavor and it's not a theme, maybe that's okay. Like everyone's uniform is like Hawaiian shirts or something. Like, yeah, I, I could see that. Like THC surf designs or something. Um, so that's why that's why I said true, Jehan, because you're right. And actually in in almost every state, you can't sell anything else in the store either. So it's not like they could sell surfboards or materials or whatever. But the fact that the headline says vibes makes me think it's a sort of surf infused, which I think would be uh, in line with the regulations that most states would have. All right. I'll go with true because if we're all right or wrong, we'll all be wrong or right together. <laughs> 
So I just brought you to this side. So I hope I'm right. <laughs> All right. The stakes are high. Um, in fact, in um, next time, Jehan, you make it down to Atlantic City, uh, you should check this place out because it is indeed true. Awesome. I have to go. A colleague of mine at uh, St. Joe's did his photography class he took over the summer on dispensary storefronts and what they look like. So I think I have to take him there. There you go. Get some good um, good photography and uh, some nice diversity. That's not just your standard store, I suppose. All right. So let's see how you guys do. You're, uh, we've got 50 points for that one. So, Jayhan, you're still in the lead, 150 to 50, with your, your bonus <laughs> uh, swoop there at the beginning. It's like you get that fast clicker fingers. Um, so the next article, true or false, um, local bakery rises to the occasion, introduces CBD-infused sourdough. And Nigam, you went first, so Jayhan, let's, let's hear your thoughts here. Hmm, I don't know. I mean, everyone puts so much stuff in CBD these days. I mean... You know, and, and now they're coming for my sourdough bread. Like, I don't know. I want this to be false. Um, just, uh, you know, you know, I'm going to say, I'm going to go with, I hope that they're following FDA guidelines and you're not allowed to put CBD in food. That'd be great. Um, you know, so I'm going to say that you have risen to the occasion to try and trick us. And I am going to say false. Uh, no dough. Uh, for this question. I don't need to know your answer because I think uh, <laughs> it's half-baked. So I'm going to say false. All right. That's a high level of confidence. Uh, I don't know if the, I heard the oven timer go off yet. So, Nigam? Um, hmm. I, I'll say true. I mean, we got CBD pillows and stuff. You know, why not sourdough? I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong, but I'm saying I believe... Somebody would do it, and I believe somebody else would make a clickbait article about it. All right, so we've got a split panel. Um, Jillian, which side are you going to fall on? Yeah, I'm going to tip the scales and say true, um, because I, I think we see CBD and hemp-derived cannabinoid products being infused in virtually everything now because there's no regulation and no enforcement around it. So if it's not true, I think it, it could be. So I have to land on the side of it's true. All right. Well, um, looks like we we got you guys tricked. Um, it's indeed false. I will say I did some Googling around just to double check that I wasn't making something up that could actually exist because, yeah, there's CBD and yeah. socks and uh, everywhere. Um, I did find some Reddit sourdough threads with messing around with a CBD loaf, but nobody has taken that to a commercial level that's been picked up by the news at least. So maybe I should have thought more about the product you were saying, because now that you're saying it, I'm like, oh, maybe sourdough, because it's a starter, maybe they're complications to bringing the CBD in. I, I should have gone deeper with well, that. you know, there could be an argument made that there's complications with putting an API in any food product, you know, that I, so yeah. uh, I'm kind of like, I, I'm kind of like alluding, I'm kind of like alluding to like our, our future conversation later in the show, right? So um <laughs> Um, considering there's a uh, quite a bit of uh, there, there's a company that's been doing um, uh, honey. They've been claiming that there's CBD and honey from the honeybees that are actually mm -hmm. pollinating. Well, it's amazing what's in a what you, what can be in a product if you create a label and you don't test for it. Um, it's pretty <laughs> also true. I mean, you know, uh, it's it's really amazing. <laughs> Isn't that a sad reality? Yeah. So 
Jahan, taking it away, clean sweep so far, uh, or pretty, pretty solid sweep here with 200 points, but there's still time to recover. So the next article, Colorado Town might change its name to Kush to celebrate its growing cannabis industry. Is that true or false? And I guess Jillian, uh, just going around the table, I've got to start with you here. Well, as an Oregonian, there is a town in Oregon called Weed, Oregon, but I think it was named that far predating uh, <laughs> medical or adult use legalization. I, I'm going to say false. I think a lot goes into changing the name of a town. There might be other ways to sort of honor that you know, piece of culture of your town. So I'm going to say false in an effort to try to get some points. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Working for it, Jillian, uh, saying false. Uh, Jehan. What's your thoughts? Um, I'm sure there's lots of things people try to do in Colorado, but it does sound like a very Colorado thing to do. Um, and considering that Colorado has like some of the highest like mountain ranges, you know, they have like more land mass or land square footage because of all those mountains. And Cush comes from a mountain region. So it's like not, you know, Cush Mountains, Cush Cannabis. Hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna go all in on it being true. It does sound like something the public might want to do. The public is full of great ideas. Uh, with like, you know, I'm sure uh, public would change the name of a stop sign to "Please slow down before going through this intersection" if they could. So um, I will I will say I will say it's true. I like your optimism for humans to bring some some great just you know positive uh, light energy instead of just stop, damn it. Uh, yeah, let's <laughs> please slow down. Um, maybe you're onto something. Maybe that would be in the town of Kush. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Nigam, we've got another split uh, decision so far on our panel. Where are you going to side? Barring something like really obnoxious, I think I'm just going to true all of these. And I kind of just want this one to be true. So I'm going to vote true. All right. Oh, well, Julian, I'm sorry to report that it is indeed true. Oh, I'm failing at this game. <laughs> Wait, is it is it legal to grow cannabis outdoors in Kush, or is it still banned by the municipality? <laughs> so, <laughs> that's a good question. I wonder what. Yeah, um, my understanding is that it's it is legal to grow. There's outside, actually a requirement that but, you have to grow cannabis outside to live in Kush. <laughs> um. Well, and this, and this town happens to have area 420 as uh, one of its main staple uh, cannabis operations there. So this is true. Um, the uh, town of Moffat home to around 120 residents in 2022 had a gentleman bring this forward to, uh, as a proposal to the um, town council and, for consideration by the board. And, it did not pass from my understanding. I have not seen otherwise, but uh, they did want to honor kind of the culture of the town after it's uh, gone through some ups and downs of the economy and is uh, proud to have uh, 70 active cultivations um, get licensed there. Wow, that's um, like half so. a cultivation center per person. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sure it would have, you know, it would have made for a tourist destination. Every time I drive through Weed, Oregon on my way down I-5, people are pulled over, taking pictures by the sign, you know, now entering Weed. Mm. <laughs> although, although, you know, it's just like, it's like, yeah, uh, Weed and, and, and Lukenbach, Texas, people steal those road signs to put in their garage. Yes, so also- you may never get to Cush because tourists will probably <laughs> steal the, the sign pointing in the direction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Great, great, well, great headlines, Dave. Those were really, really you. made me think. Um, but I, I, I have to say, I don't like that you gave the CBD industry another idea for a product. I'm like, ooh, I don't know. But <laughs> I know uh, we might have to discuss that one further. Um, so, all right, let's do some points here. Uh, we're at two fifty for Jahan. We've got fifty for Jillian and Nigam. If I was keeping track, you now have a uh, hundred. Does that sound oh about gosh. Right? Um, sure. <laughs> All right. So we're going to wrap this up with just a quick rapid fire. Um, true, false. I want to know because I love standards, guys. So I have to get this in. Um, is this a subcommittee at ASTM on standards or is it not? And I'm just going to throw three out there and I want you to wager. So you've got 200, 150, sorry, 100 Nigam. You've got 250 for Jahan and 50 for Jillian. Um, so first, power parachute committee. Is that a subcommittee or not under ASTM? And you're not talking about D37. You're talking about any any ASTM. Okay. Yep. It's rapid fire, guys. Yes. I'm wait I'm betting it yes. all. Yes. True. True. It's too hard for you to make up. Yes. <laughs> True. All right. Well done. Cleaning of biohazards. Yeah, easy yes. peasy. True. Yeah, true. yeah, yeah. I mean, that sounds like a good standard. False. Oh! There is a standard on blood cleaning efficiency of detergents mm -hmm. under the Committee mm -hmm. on Soaps and Other mm -hmm. Detergents. I would like to invoke the splitting of hairs rule. On that <laughs> <one>. <laughs> you're already winning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're, you're, you're out, Jehan. All right, last one. This is uh, true-false. Adult sexual products. Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah, true. I'm going to say true. Yeah, sure. At least I, I, hope I so. dedicated to going hardline true on the whole game. So, yeah, I'll do it. It is indeed true. Although I will say it is a recent subcommittee and they currently have zero standards. So, oh, no. we need those standards. Uh -huh. uh. <laughs> I don't know how people feel about that. Can you That's join anonymously? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Save that topic for another, another podcast for another day, right? Um, all right. Thank you, guys. Um, we've got, you know, about 500 points or so to dedicate to science. So let's take a brief commercial break and we will get into the news and current events section. Attention, cannabis testing, hemp testing and extraction labs. Are you struggling to track every gram of sample and stay compliant with regulations? Look no further than Cloud Limbs, an out-of-the-box, configurable laboratory information management system with zero upfront costs. With Cloud Limbs, you can streamline your workflows, automate processes, follow SOPs, and submit test results to state tracking systems like Metric and BioTrack with the click of a button. And if you're worried about compliance, CloudLimbs has you covered. It helps you follow ISO 17025, GMP, GLP, 21 CFR Part 11, USDA's hemp testing rules, as well as state and local regulatory guidelines. CloudLimbs is also a SOC 2 compliant and ISO 9001 certified informatics company, assuring data security. What's more, CloudLimbs offers a wide variety of complementary services, 
including technical support and training, instrument integration, custom C of A templates, product upgrades, and hosting, in addition to legacy data migration and automatic data backups. To see CloudLimbs in action, you can book a personalized demo at your convenience from their website. For more information, write to support at cloudlimbs.com or call 302-789-0447 or chat with them live online. Back to the show. And we're back. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining along with the game before. I hope you have also tallied your points and are preparing to donate those to the cause of your choice. Um, but we're going to jump into the news section. And we actually do have some uh, late breaking news. And it does happen that our guest panelist was a witness uh, firsthand to this news. So it's quite fresh. And um, thank you again, Jillian, for, for making it here. Uh, it is Great to have you like fresh off the plane, uh, sleep deprivation aside. Um, yesterday, as of this recording, which was June 20, July 27th, sorry, there was a House hearing and the House Oversight Committee. Um, within that committee, it was the Healthcare and Financial Services Subcommittee. And the topic um, was titled Hemp in the Modern World, the Years-Long Wait for FDA Action. So, you know, Maybe you start to read between the lines and have an idea of what the purpose of this uh, meeting was. I will be honest, I wasn't too enthused and expecting much out of it. And then I happened to notice that Jillian Shower happened to be one of the witnesses. And I was like, well, I actually need to listen now because there might be something of substance here. Um, what it will do, what the, you know, what this means for the industry or doesn't mean, you know, we'll kind of get into and maybe speculate a bit about what we expect to come next. But um, yeah, it was, you know, quite the two hour event with four different speakers there, um, you know, and it, it kind of comes based on the issue of like CBD and synthetic cannabinoids. And as I alluded to earlier, there's been this longstanding disagreement around whether the FDA uh, has the authority to regulate these products. Um, the FDA has come out pretty clearly, um, most recently as of I believe January or February of this year, saying that they, they need a regulatory framework in order to um, adequately or actually, you know, regulate these products in commerce because it does not fit as a dietary supplement or food. Um, despite that, you know, we've got something like over 25,000 convenience stores across America, and many of them are carrying products that have zero oversight um, that may and uh, often are intoxicating. And this is, you know, traditionally the role of the FDA, something that we take for granted when we go to our convenience or grocery stores that there's been some oversight and uh, due diligence ensured and that there are like legal enforcement abilities to protect us as consumers so that we don't have to think twice about what's in the product when we buy it. Um, so, you know, in this absence, much like the medical cannabis programs, um, states have been forced to step up and fill those gaps to protect their consumers within their state jurisdictions. Um, so, you know, depending on where you consume your news, you may hear some different perspectives on what actually happened and what the significance of this hearing was. Um, you know, one thing I found ironic as we get in is that the FDA was not present to defend themselves or to even speak, um, which I think, uh, you know, personally, I feel that the FDA has quite a bit of very intelligent and driven scientists there that are dedicated to literally their mission, which is to protect public health and safety. Um, but, you know, these regulations provide guardrails in which regulators can actually operate within, including the allocation of funding. So um, with that, you know, Jillian, it doesn't seem often 
that you or many state regulators actually get asked to weigh in on these conversations, um, and uh, especially with the legislative bodies. So the fact that you uh, were brought uh, out there last minute to testify, all that considered, I think is a significant milestone. And so I really want to just open it up and hand it over to you. Um, what's the crux of the problem? Um, and what role is Canvas serving to be part of the solution? Like what, what came up yesterday from your eyes? Yeah. And thanks again for having me. It, this really is fresh news. So I was one of four witnesses. Uh, the other witnesses were Jonathan Miller, uh, who's general counsel with the U.S. Hemp Roundtable, Dr. Rayetta Henderson, who's a senior managing scientist with Talk Strategies, and Richard Badaracco, who's the president-elect of the Kentucky Narcotic Officers Association. I was brought in as a witness at the last minute, so it looked for a while that there wasn't going to be a regulatory perspective at a hearing about regulating hemp. Uh, so I was I was very happy to get the call, although it did come um, very last minute. And I think the perspective that regulators had and sh- and that I was able to share through my position as a witness is a bit different than some of the other um, groups that were there. So, you know, we outlined the problem. I think we all know that problem well. The definition of hemp in the 2018 Farm Bill was extremely broad and virtually legalized everything that comes from or can be made from the hemp plant, which is the same plant that we get, quote unquote, marijuana from. Um, They're one in the same, cannabis sativa L. And so I I shared what my regulators have seen on the ground, this proliferation of intoxicating products derived in a lot of different ways from hemp. We have derivatives where CBD is, it's usually CBD, is being converted chemically into a lot of different cannabinoids, some of which we have seen before, some of which we haven't and have no safety information about. Um, We talked about the 0.3% loophole, which the definition of the farm bill draws a line in the sand and says if it's less than 0.3% delta 9 THC by weight, we're going to call it hemp. If it's more than that, we're going to call it marijuana. Well, that's a very agricultural approach to defining something. And that might work just fine in the plant. But as soon as you extract something from the plant, that by weight definition becomes very different. And you can get hundreds of milligrams of Delta 9 THC into edibles, beverages, products that are heavier. Um, And then we also touched on the THCA loophole, which I think we're seeing being utilized more and more. THCA, of course, being the precursor to Delta 9 THC in the plant form. But as soon as that is heated and decarboxylated, it becomes Delta 9 THC. And we're seeing a proliferation now of products, especially online, that have high levels of THCA and really are identical to the products we see in the adult use market. They're just marketing it with THCA, knowing that it's going to be heated or combusted and turned into Delta 9. So um, I shared in my testimony A lot of these products mirror what we see in adult use markets, but they're being called hemp and they're not regulated like the products in adult use or medical use markets. And many of the products go beyond what we see in in state legal markets now. Somebody just sent me last week a company that's selling a party pack edible. It's one edible that has 20,000 milligrams of Delta 9 THC in it. And you're supposed to have a serving size, which I assume is a bite of the edible that is 3,000 milligrams. Um, So these are things that would never make it through any approval in a state regulated market. And yet you could go online today and and buy that product. Um, So, you know, I think basically Congress, without knowing it, maybe has legalized marijuana without a regulatory framework and called it hemp. And that's creating a really 
tough situation for regulators. We need federal engagement. States are doing their best, usually through state legislatures, to try to rein in what we've seen on the market to protect their industrial hemp market and also to bring these intoxicating products under a regulatory framework, which often and increasingly is their regulatory framework for adult use cannabis or medical cannabis. But there are still gaps. Even the best laid state regulatory infrastructure cannot touch the online market in the ways that are needed, cannot deal with interstate commerce in the ways that are needed. We need federal minimum standards so that we don't end up creating a patchwork for regulations for hemp-derived cannabinoid products. We're trying to undo that patchwork for adult-use products and have more harmonization. Um, So we really need federal engagement, and that's what we called for at the hearing. Uh, My read of the Farm Bill is that it doesn't clearly name a regulator. It says that the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act applies, but uh, there are reasons that we think that doesn't perfectly apply to the kind of products we we see in the market. And I talked about some of those yesterday. What do you do with combusted products and um, inhalable products? What do you do with labeling that needs to differ across product types? What do you do with products that should be tested and, and go beyond CGMP? There are a lot of reasons that the dietary and food pathways, you know, aren't a perfect fit. So we think a federal regulator needs to be named, authorized, funded, and given a really rigorous timeline under which to uh, come up with a regulatory framework for these products. We think that framework needs to be broad and holistic and account for what we see on the market now and what we might see on the market in the future, which extends far beyond CBD. We see most products having many cannabinoids, um, you know, all of the different modes of, of use. So I was glad to have a brief opportunity. Five minutes goes very fast as an oral testimony timeframe, but a brief opportunity to talk about some of these. And I hope it's just uh, the first of many ongoing discussions with different congressional uh, committees about how to how to bring this into a better light for consumer safety and public health. Wow. Yeah, no, thank you again, Jillian, for actually making the, uh, you know, kind of reshuffling your summer schedule to put that put that out there for important you know, um, <clears throat> folks in the house to hear. And I know I want to follow up with you after I go around to Nigam and Jehan on, you know, some of your perspectives of, you know, the importance to recognize uh, who was there and who asked for this, uh, you know, hearing yesterday. But, you know, Nigam, you know, kind of building on what Jillian was saying, where we've got this, you know, it's five years now, we've got this loophole through the farm bill that has exploited this marketplace. And there's investors everywhere that are taking advantage of, you know, seeing the opportunities to uh, fund, you know, CBD products and these other derivatives. So from your side, as a, you know, organic chemist and, uh, you know, businessman that's advised a lot of companies, the idea of regulations and regulatory certainty, um, do you see this as a positive sign? Like what, what's your takeaway for what they're asking? Like how would you advise uh, a client um, based on what's being asked for in terms of regula- regulatory oversight compared to today? Yeah, so I'll say a couple things. Uh, one is that uh, I only work with clients that have ethics. So... <laughs> um, you know, I would be restricted and my clients who want to work with me would be restricted to following frameworks that respect uh, the health and safety of the population of our states and country. Um, So having said that, um, as just like a kind of blanket statement about my professional work and how I would advise a client or a company that wants to have longevity and respect for themselves or consumers or investors, their community. Um, But to just like uh, 
move beyond that and just discuss from like a theoretical perspective, uh, there's basically a thing and it's not just cannabis. It's everything right. That, um, if it's not well regulated, then it's a wild west and there's people who are going to take advantage and they don't care about, uh, safety. They don't care about the consumer. They don't care about the adverse events. Um, there's nothing more important than a dollar and that's it. And actually some of these people will kind of like actively ignore the science. Uh, I, I guess what I'm saying is like, if you kind of tell yourself, Oh, it's not that. Oh, I, Oh, I haven't heard about any adverse events. Then it's like, okay, well then it's easier to be unethical if you kind of blind yourself, you know? So anyways, I think, um, just to keep it simple, I think there's two buckets and there's the bucket where people say, Oh, look at that gap that can be exploited. Let's go exploit it Mm -hmm. to the end of the earth Mm -hmm. for a dollar. And then, uh, there's the other side where there's people who are either going to follow the regulations or they're going to go beyond that and they're going to contribute to the regulation. They're going to champion advancing the regulations. And these are the kind of companies that I work with. And these are the kind of companies that uh, I support with my consumer dollar. And I will say uh, it's an uphill battle talking to people about cannabis. I mean, wow, I really, I can't even get into it right now just because I'll just talk for just till my, my, jaw falls off about it but um it it is really an uphill battle speaking about the nuances of the current cannabis market consumer product market even with intelligent people i mean these are intelligent people who care about their health who care about their safety who care about their family who care about you know having good industries in their community but they still don't have a good understanding that oh that product that looks cool at the corner store is unregulated and has a lot of crazy stuff in it, you know? Wow. Um, no, thanks, uh, Nigam. I think you've really uh, well covered the fact that how complicated this is and the fact that we're five years in the making and it's it's something that we could dive in for, for hours on end, which obviously people have over the last five years and we haven't gotten deep enough to address that reality, uh, let, like, acknowledge that reality, let alone fix it. I almost find it shocking that... It's like the landscape is worse than prohibition era in some regards, you know? Um, so that's, that's kind of disturbing when you think about it. It's a pretty unsettling reality. Um, you know, Jehan, I, I just want to jump to you because you've been at this for like 20 years. I know I've read, even before I knew you, some testimony you provided in like the state of Pennsylvania and other places as, you know, federal as state frameworks were coming online. You've been the chief science officer of a you know, major um, advocacy group about a decade ago. Um, like, wh- what's your take on all of this? I mean, build on what Nigam said. I definitely want to hear your perspective on the realities of what to expect. <laughs> well, I think, you know, anytime you want to have a heated argument at a cannabis or hemp meeting, just ask the question is, uh, you know, is enforcement increasing or decreasing by the FDA for cannabis and hemp products? You'll get a whole host of situations, but I really like the fact that this hearing is happening because the purpose of these things is to mitigate the ambiguity and the perplexity that normally would have led to legal interventions and court enforcement actions, which nobody really wins. It's a serious drain on federal agencies. It's a drain on companies. Um, And it further um, confuses the industry. And I I think that we have to remember that the 
you know, there are two things I that I think are the most poorly understood things about drug policy are what does the FDA actually do and the scheduling process. And I think those two things, getting better clarity on those is always important. And as I think uh, Jillian uh, um, discussed earlier, you know, the FDA can't just make whatever regulations it wants. This isn't 1940. Um, there's been a series of amendments and things passed to limit the FDA's power. And I don't think people actually realize that the FDA just can't make up regulations or policy. It needs Congress's approval. And it also needs money to do that. I'm <laughs> You know, I'm joking, but I'm not joking when I say before this hearing, there's probably a bunch of people from federal agencies who said, you can have this hearing, but whatever you do, don't make it my job to do this. Um, so, you know, nobody wants to do their job and regulate an entire industry with no support. And, and I think that that is really my hope here is that this brings to light, um, you know, the FDA has this, you know, this brings to light the FDA's responsibilities and that. The FDA really needs support here. Um, it's, it's no secret, right, that FDA's had a series of commissioners who all have their own agendas and their own programs. But when they leave, when there's a big leadership change at the FDA, those programs sometimes don't continue. I mean, you, there's a whole list of them, right? Like probably the most famous one I think is from like 1960 was to review all the um, artificial color additives in food. Um, and that just sort of stopped. One, because there was a change at leadership. And two, Congress uh, appropriates funding. And if that funding changes, poof, there goes the program. So you know, we could have all the hopes and good intentions and skilled people at the FDA we want, but if one year they have funding to create a cannabis program and the next year they don't, and then the next commissioner that comes in, isn't this isn't a priority for them, um, you know, this, this could not work uh, very well. But again, the FDA isn't without resources here. We've all heard of the warning letters. And the FDA also has, you know, tactical use of the media to destroy products. Um, you know, non-fat dry milk, trans fats, GMOs, tobacco products, alcohol, like all these things to change consumer behavior. The the FDA has used the media for that. And it seems to, you know, be holding back on these, these products because I think that they're trying to actively um, regulate them. So I think that, you know, my hope is that this lays the foundwork for funding appropriations from Congress for the FDA to effectively regulate cannabis, which um, again may and hemp, which may change with the Biden's administration's um, expedited review, but I ho really hope that there is funding put aside that cannot be touched, that is earmarked to create this safe and effective regulatory uh, pathway for cannabis and hemp products to live together um, and, and things like that in, in these marketplaces. But um, I will say that. Um, I think there will always be a bit of a gray area. I think that if the product, whether it's cannabis hemp, is produced within a state and stays in a state and is consumed in the state and the marketing materials don't leave the state, <laughs> I don't think the FDA is going to do anything. But I think it's when you're advertising a product in Ohio and someone's driving from Wisconsin because they read about a claim about that product to buy it there and then take it back to their home state and consume it. I think the FDA uh, would have jurisdiction there. So... Um, just a snapshot reading the, the tea leaves here of, of what the future regulation will look like. You know, I think the, the FDA will real, will clamp down on label claims and testing um, and, and things like that, but they're not going to be able to regulate consumer behavior.
No, thank you, Jehan. Uh, I want to, you know, share something briefly and go to Jillian for some final thoughts here. Um, you know, because most consumers are not experts in regulation standards or even, you know, science, right? And so to expect consumers or even Congress to the way they, they spoke yesterday to uh, fully understand this this issue, um, I think is is unfortunate, uh, you know, un, unrealistic expectation. Um, you know, when we look at Delta 8 versus Delta 9, we're talking about isomers that are super technical. Um, and somehow we've gotten consumers to start learning about isomers without realizing it. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I often hear that products are like THC free or that it's, you know, full spectrum CBD. So, you know, what are the issues around that um, from a consumer safety standpoint that you've seen, Jillian? Yeah, and, and I really liked, I think it was you, you Nigam, uh, that was talking about the how dense this is scientifically and how that also impacts the policy that we see coming out. It's it's lawmakers that also have to understand this to make policy. So I think most people see CBD and think it's only CBD. It's not intoxicating. I think we have a major consumer awareness and knowledge crisis happening around these products. And the packaging and labeling is not regulated federally and doesn't actually have to tell consumers what's in it. I think most people who buy a product in a grocery store assume this product is federally regulated and safe for me and has what it says on the label is in it and nothing more. And the reality is that a lot of these products contain other cannabinoids, which there are lots of reasons for that, you know, potential benefits, but they're not required to disclose that to consumers. Uh, Full spectrum, whole plant products that extract out all the cannabinoids in the product can have THC. That could yield a positive drug test. Like they're real, you know, that could get some people high. There are real implications for this that I think uh, create major consumer safety risks and need to be disclosed. I think manufacturing also needs to be disclosed so that consumers know if there might be unknown byproducts or how the product was made. Did it come from the plant or was it made chemically? And I think all of that also impacts what we know about uh, adverse effects as well. I think consumers don't have a good awareness of the products they're using and aren't able to accurately report if they have an adverse effect, what the product actually was. Was it just CBD? Was it whole, whole plant? Was it some you know synthesized derivative? Um, those are really important issues as we try to think about what these pro- how these products need to be regulated going forward. We also see unregulated medical claims. There's you know no notification of drug drug interactions. And I think consumers aren't being appropriately warned about harm reduction approaches they may need to take at home, like safe storage. So I, I, you know, I've said a lot of the the issues, and we didn't have capacity to talk about all of this as part of the hearing. But I also want to point out this was a monumental hearing. Um, I think the last hearing on hemp was more than a year ago. I don't know that there are other hearings that will be planned around hemp this year, and this is a year for the farm bill. Uh, and so this was a really important hearing to have happen. Uh, I don't believe this committee plans to take any legislative action. I think this was uh, more of a hearing to talk about whether or not FDA should have acted, you know, didn't act, what's happened in that regard. But I think the hearing happened at a really opportune time because the Farm Bill discussions are heating up in D.C. and that has to happen. Maybe not this year. It could be postponed into next year, but has to happen. We also see activity from bipartisan committees in the House and Senate that uh, 
provide authorization to FDA. So I think it's important for listeners to know that two, yesterday, in addition to the congressional hearing, two congressional committees that authorize FDA, the House Energy and Commerce Committee and the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions came out with a request for information about FDA regulation on CBD and hemp-derived cannabinoids. They're basically saying, we want experts and stakeholders to tell us how FDA should be addressing the range of, you know, what's happening with market dynamics, pathways for regulation, the scope of their regulatory authority, federal state interaction, safety, quality, product form and packaging. So it's a really amazing opportunity for people that know a lot about this area to give insight directly to Congress. Uh, And I think responses are due by August 18th. CANRA will be responding, and I hope a lot of other knowledgeable scientists and stakeholders will respond as well. Thanks for sharing that all, Jillian. Um, You know, just as we wrap up this section, I think your point about the uh, subcommittee and this House Oversight Committee that uh, led this hearing, probably not, you know, pushing forward any sort of like uh, legislation. You know, I think when you look at, I don't remember, I don't have her, her closing remark quoted, but when the opening mark was translation, give us more authority, give us more money, give us more staff, and then we'll actually do our duties under the, under the law um, is kind of this this farce cry of misunderstanding from our, from the Senator, or sorry, Congress, Congresswoman. Um, yeah, the, the, the chair, that was the, the chairwoman, um, and it's a, it's chaired by a Republican representative from Michigan. That that was her opening remark. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it's clearly looked at, you know, kind of this this negative against the FDA versus let's actually do something about it. And I am really refreshed to hear the other work that's going on, the other committees and a uh, good plug. Everybody that's listening along, go you go to the link um, on the podcast uh, description. And if you have information to share this is the time to do it. So we are at a monumental moment with the farm bill being up for renewal this year uh, for legislation. This is key. So um, I'm I'm super encouraged to see some progress happening here, which we don't always have. So I'm going to pause there and we're going to go to a commercial break before we go to our last half of the show where we'll dive into a couple of analytes of uh, in these products a bit further. So thanks and stay tuned. Hello, this is Jehan Marku. If you're looking for life sciences consulting in cannabis and psychedelics, look no further than Marku and Aurora. At our firm, we provide expert services from experimental design to technical project management and investor due diligence. If it has to do with the fundamentals and novel drug areas, we're your go-to. Reach out to us at marku-aurora.com to schedule a discovery call today. Remember that the application of scientific approaches and properly gathered data can give you an edge towards reaching your goal. All right, and welcome back for our third and final part of the show today, Rapid Fire Science. Let's pick it up a little bit. Um, I know the last uh, section was a little heavy. It's a heavy topic. Let's be real. This is serious consumer uh, risks. And um, with that, you know, today's article, the paper comes out of Journal of Natural Products. It was published back in February of this year. And the title, 
is isolation and characterization of impurities in commercially marketed Delta-8 THC products. Uh, by now, you might have some semblance of awareness of what Delta-8 means, um, but we'll dive into that a bit further. You know, for those who don't know, it's another psychoactive cannabinoid found in small quantities in the cannabis uh, plant um, and extracts. But what's an important fact is that it's formed as part of what's called a non-enzymatic reaction of Delta-9 THC or uh, cyclization of CBD. What does that mean? <clears throat> Basically, it happens on its own and it's not part of the biosynthetic pathway in the plant. The plant does not produce it naturally. So I think that's an important concept that maybe uh, Nigam can just uh, opine in on a bit later. But, um, you know, again, the plant doesn't make the product. You know, you think about like the rusting of iron, you know, the producer didn't of the iron didn't make the rust that happens over time as a result of exposure to oxygen and water. So, you know, when folks say this is a natural, uh, naturally occurring, well, it's a little bit more complicated than that because science is just a little complicated, right? Um, so this this research paper came um, out of the team from the team of out of the University of Mississippi, um, and they actually looked at impurities in synthetically derived delta eight THC from different commercial products that are out in the marketplace in these gas stations that uh, we've you know seen. So you know how they did this is a little complicated. So I'm going to try to explain it for the audience. Um, so first, they analyzed several different commercial delta eight products, um, including vapes, gummies, and distillates. But upon looking at them through their analytical instrumentation, they saw a bunch of compounds that were unidentified and they could not quantify or even uh, qualitatively, um, you know, identify, let alone putting, you know, a value around it. So at that point, they said, well, we'll go buy some commercially available Delta 8 THC distillate. We'll use that and we'll start isolating the compounds with sufficient quantity to try to figure out what the heck is actually in there. And so using a combination of analytical instruments that you wouldn't even see in your commercial testing lab where, you know, you might see C of A's get reported from. They were able to determine most, but not all of the different peaks. Um, and so I think this is really exciting and important because now for the first time, there's enough quantity to be able to establish reference standards, which is needed for any other commercial lab to even be able to, let alone, you, you know, create the analytical method, but to actually say, this is, I have confirmation that this peak is actually that analyte. Um, and these are analytes that have never been found before, uh, certainly not in nature. So we have no safety or toxicological data on them. Um, and that's really important, right? When you think about consumer safety, because we're just, these are out there in the world. Um, so, you know, I want to discuss this in a bit more detail. Um, and I'll admit, you know, I spoke with the primary author. I was at Ole Miss back in the spring. I read the article. I followed up with Dr. Al-Soli, who's um, led the research um, and has uh, led with the sole contract to NIDA for about 50 years. Uh, they're the one that's the lab that produces the government funded research uh, cannabis for research purposes for the United States government. Um, and I still had some more questions. So we've got some smart people here in the room. Um, Jehan, you've toured the El Soli lab. I know we've discussed Ole Miss on the show before. I feel like Ole Miss kind of gets a bad rap for its cannabis research program. I don't really buy it, to be honest, based on what I've seen. But, um, you know, there's a treasure trove of research that's come out of there. Um, and this is just one of them. So, you know, tell me what you thought of the article and, you know, tie it back to, you know, the credibility of uh, Ole Miss's uh, research and data. Well, I'm, uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I would just start with, I think everyone who criticizes Ole Miss is just jealous, right? I mean, 
they've had a standardized cannabis product for decades that's never been recalled, has been safely consumed with minimal adverse events by all sorts of patients that are immunocompromised. I could see why a lot of people in the cannabis industry would be jelly and going for some low blows to talk about oldness. Oh, his cannabis hasn't changed since the 70s. That's the point of a new drug application is to maintain it and keep, you don't just change it whenever you want. Um, and also, uh, like, look at the work they're doing. He doesn't have to do this. He, you know, he could rest on his laurels and just go bowling every day or something. But instead, he's still out there generating information to counteract the nonsense that's out there. So I think this does a number of things. One, it shows that there are methods available. Hooray. You know what? Congress, FDA, you don't have to understand the methods, but here's a credible lab that's published them. They work. Um, so again, we can start to delve down deeper into what this stuff is. And again, I have bias here because, um, you know, as uh, when I was a young researcher, I mean, working under a DA license, Mahmoud sent me compounds to screen for CB1 and CB2 receptor activity to help with these sorts of projects. And the fact that one, he just, he sent me the compounds. I'm a nobody, you know, I'm, I'm kind of somebody now, but you know, he, he sent them, didn't charge me money, didn't, didn't like make a big stink about it. It was just, he was an open and friendly researcher. And I think I'm so thankful every day that we have the team we do at Ole Miss to inform us because, you know, everyone talks about, oh, hey, that someone discovered Delta 9 THC, um, God rest his soul. But what about the other like 90 cannabinoids that have been discovered at Ole Miss? Like, why do we hate on those? Coming in real handy right about now. Um, and so I think like there's not a really big surprise that a that bathtub gin of of CBD products and cannabinoid products has a bunch of unintended chemicals on it um, or intentional. I mean, I'm sure they're mixed in batches. Um, you know, I'm, no one's telling them to clean their surfaces. So and this is just what they can look for. Um, but I think when we come to this, there brings up an important point as I wrap up my little rant standing on my hemp box here. And that is we have to define significance here. You know, Dave, we've talked a lot about limit of detection, limit of, of quantification. Uh, so at what level do these adulterants, contaminants, byproducts, whatever you want to call them, um, at what level are they insignificant to human health? And I think it'd be great to be able to answer that question. I mean, we have those limits for sugar and calories, you know, if it's less than a half gram of sugar per serving or something like that, uh, it's an insignificant amount of sugar and you can put sugar-free, no sugar uh, on your product. And so when can we start doing that with hemp products? Do we have to label all these ingredients? And so for me, I think the point is, if you're a hemp company listening to this, is not to like find a new way to get you. It's to help you label your products accurately so you don't get got. So you don't end up uh, in a courtroom with someone suing you for millions of dollars because you misled them about the labeling on your product because there's not a clear, you know, we, we need, really need to solve this question of what is nothing and how can we label something free of something? And so what are the safe levels of that? We have it for peanuts, right? Uh, we have it for allergens. Uh, we need it for these byproducts. And so I think this is the first step in a long way of giving the tools. What's great about this is the methods are published, right? There's not a secret sauce in some private lab. Here you go, public. Here's a way to test these things using probably 30-year-old instrumentation that you can buy on eBay. So again, it, you know, it's, it's not maybe a commercial method that you can make a lot of money using, but it's one that works. It's reliable. It's been published in the literature. 
And um, I, it would really be great to see the industry, the hemp industry, CBD industry, try to respond to this with more data of their own. Hey, we tested 40 products at random and we actually saw different profiles or we saw the same profile. So I hope this encourages more people to test it. And again, gives regulators a pathway towards, this is almost like a little mini monograph on Delta 8 products for regulators to follow. So yeah, um, uh, yeah with that, I will pass uh, the hemp microphone. <laughs> I'm going to pick that up and uh, volley it over to the West Coast and to Nigam. Um, you know, I think you bring up some really good, important points, Jehan, in terms of like the bare minimum the industry should be doing. If you're a producer and you're making a new product, right? That's R&D and you need to characterize the full product. What is in there? All right. If it's 96% Delta 8, let's just say, or CBD, what's the other 4%? And there are limits at which you can say it's there, but below a certain threshold to claim purity. But we have to establish all of that, right? We have that for every other industry and any other consumer product that exists. We should be no different. And you want that for your own, like to sleep at night, for your own risk management. That's the bare minimum. And this is what folks should be doing. So it's amazing. I agree to your point that this data is actually being published. It can be done. This is how to do it. Um, So, you know, use it. There's no reason not to or, or come up something better, right? Challenge accepted, innovate and uh, challenge and improve uh, through through the scientific process. So, you know, Nigam, right? You've been an organic chemist, you've done some formulation work, um, kind of what's, um, you know, you've synthesized some crazy molecules out there. Um, there were 11 identified purity and purities that they isolated. Um, uh, and determine their structures and not all of them they were able to determine. So, you know, I want to hear your perspective, help, help communicate this to the general public of what all these impurities mean when we've got these ISOs and CISs and transes. Uh, happy to. So I'm going to keep it really simple. Uh, cause I think that's just the best way to start. And then if you want to know more, call me, uh, email me, we'll talk, <laughs> I'll talk your ear off about it. So, um, let's not even talk about cannabis, CBD, Delta eight. Let's just talk about any chemical reaction, right? Okay, so you're going to start with, let's hope you start with, in an optimal situation, you start with a pure substance. You're starting with 100% something. Okay, then you're dissolving that in a pure solvent. Okay, great. Now you want to do chemistry. You want to alter that original pure substance. Okay, so very few reactions are a perfect reaction, meaning that in the equation I have one starting material, one solvent, and then you put in one other molecular entity that's also pure, right? So in a perfect reaction, that results in you having uh, those two compounds you put in the solvent become one compound that you've put in the solvent. That's a perfect reaction. Okay, so that essentially does not exist. Um, yeah, there's a few that like, oh, I mean, let me not go into all the crazy details of synthetic organic chemistry, but basically in reality, it just doesn't happen. Even in the simplest, best reactions that work on earth, uh, there's a little more of one compound or there's a little bit of a side product or there's something. Okay. Now let's go into reality, even in a, uh, lab where you have like a skilled, trained, ethical chemist. Okay. Reactions aren't perfect. And in this case, okay, you're starting with 
a flour that has four or 500 molecules in it, or you're starting with an oil that has 50 or a hundred molecules in it. Um, okay. Then you're doing reactions on that. Okay. And then, uh, let me not go into the whole process of, uh, chromatography and how you clean this stuff up and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I would have to talk for a long time, but the point of what I'm saying, I think the listeners understanding that, uh, it's very easy with chemistry and with chemistry that has multiple compounds from the start, like with a natural product that you're going to get a lot of side products, right? So even if let's go to like the really the a root of this topic, which is there's an abundance of CBD available. There's um, that is being converted uh, into Delta eight THC because it's a legal gray area. And because you can sell Delta eight for more than you can sell CBD for. That's why it's happening. That's the, the economic root of the issue, right? Okay. So then uh, let's go back to chemistry. So you're starting with a starting material that is a CBD oil or a CBD isolate or a CBD flower that has kind of an unknown amount of molecules in it. And then you have often amateur chemists doing unvetted conversions. So you're taking uh, Jayhan said bathtub gin. I'm going to use the word sludge. So you're taking a sort of <laughs> chemical sludge and you are converting it into more sludge. Have you heard this thing? Listener garbage in garbage out. Uh, so now I'm not saying that the molecules in there are garbage molecules. What I'm saying is that if you want to do a clean reaction and have a clean product, it's garbage in garbage out, right? You start clean, you get, you know, you, you do something standardized, you get clean. Okay. So, um, that's me trying to talk about chemistry simply, right? So now Dave, let me just touch on this article, not to monopolize time. <laughs> um, okay. So they're highlighting uh, what is it? Is it 14? Is it 11? Um, I don't know. They're highlighting uh, about a dozen molecules that they've identified. Now, these are molecules that are common that come up in this conversion of a non-standardized CBD into a non-standardized Delta-8. Now, the reality for the consumer, and going back to our prior segment, is that we know what CBD is. And we have a significant amount of research, animal research, anecdotal research. Uh, people have just been taking it uh, long ago before uh, prohibition caused cannabis to be high in THC. You know, the millennia of T CBD uh, cannabis use, there's a lot of CBD. The point is we know what CBD is, right? In some small regard, we know what Delta-8 is in a small regard, right? Now, these other dozen or so products in here, we barely know what they are. Like if you go and you go on PubMed and you try to search, oh, it, what happens when you give these to humans or animals? The answer is we don't know. I'll just pause here is I think the thing that I would want consumers to know is that we know what CBD is. We know to a degree what Delta 8 is. All this other stuff, we don't know what it is. And um, I would say it's not risk-free to consume it, uh, especially if you're talking about vaporizing it or taking large doses of it. Um, so I'm running into public health and all that, Dave, I don't know if I answered your question, um, but I took a stab. I 
think you did. And I really appreciate it. Um, I want to kind of bring this back and then I want to hear Jillian's perspectives because, you know, the consumer hat and then the regulators hat is equally as important because most regulators are also not organic chemists. And, you know, I can envision back to, you know, seventh grade chemistry class where we were balancing equations. And I think what you're saying is if you remember back to photosynthesis where you've got, was it CO2 plus water and some light energy, you know, causes the conversion to make sugar plus oxygen that we all breathe, right? And that's like this perfect reaction, but it's not that simple. And the plant is more than just sugar, right? So that's that's the most simple example that you're explaining to us. Um, and that's the reality that we're not we're not addressing. Well, and to be clear, like an example that I'm saying, like about having one solvent and two molecules to convert into like an end product, that is like way more simple than photosynthesis. Um, yeah. The, the, the complex. And it's still not a perfect reaction. Chemistry is hyper complex in chemistry of natural products. Again, hyper complex. And um, what I'm seeing in this paper is that they're, they're doing a good baseline job of just saying, Hey, here's what's in it, but here's what's in it. And then like, what are the effects of those things? Good or bad. That's all that's layers on layers, years, decades of research from this and beyond, you know? So before I go to you, Jillian, um, you know, just to recap some of the compounds that they found in there, right. You know, there's, you know, CBT, now that's a minor cannabinoid uh, that folks may or may not have heard of. Um, you know, Delta-8 THCV, you know, folks may or may not have heard of THCV. There are cultivars that can be grown with that strain, but this is Delta-8 THCV. So it's, it's not just the normal THCV that we see out there. I don't actually even know, maybe Jehan, you know, what, or Nigam, which, which, um, <clears throat> which uh, isomer of THCV is grown, uh, is produced by the plant, um, but... You know, that's another example, right? We've got this like Delta-8 cis-iso-THC. These are different. They look structurally like as, from a functional weight standpoint, they are the same weight in some examples like that in Delta-4 iso-THC. But this is really complicated. There's a lot of compounds that folks should not, um, you know, makes your ingredients label on your, you know, food product look really, really simple. Um, and these are not products that have ever been produced or known, known to man. Yeah, do you have some of that? Yeah, I, I would also say that, you know, if you were running a typical analysis for cannabis products, a lot of these things might elute just as the Delta 9 peak because they are so similar in weight, right? Chem chromatography separation science isn't some like magic thing. Like Nigam said, it's not going to magically turn sludge into something else, right? It's not, um, but what you are going to do is, is separate things by how much they weigh. So this was a very sensitive assay to separate like all these super similar, similar things. Um, and, and I think like, just to give an example, there's a compound labeled THCBF. Um, if you search that, you know, it's not THC best friend cannabinoid. Um, it, it, there's like nothing out there. There's actually a company called THCBF, but there's no, no information um, about a compound. And I think that my favorite cannabinoid they found was uh, unknown <laughs> and question mark. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> I saw like, that. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, you know, that we're, maybe they're about to make some novel discovery. And I think it would be hilarious um, if it was researchers who were looking at these 
um, products and they discovered some cannabinoid that turned out to have great therapeutic use because it was an unknown compound that these companies didn't even know they were making accidentally. But I definitely would say um, some of these compounds like you know, they might be making two or three reactions and mixing some of these things together. So, you know, if someone wants to do a thesis about forensic hemp analysis, I, I think the time, the time is right for something like that. Um, and, I, and I think many of these we think are isomers and, and of existing compounds. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. It's not every day you see a chromatogram on a hemp or cannabis product with so many unknowns, I think three or four listed here. Yeah. Wow. No, thanks, Jayan. And that's, oh my God. Um, so let me actually just go to Jillian because as we've discussed, this is an incredibly complex topic. And when you even think about the molecular weight, when you've got commercial applications of testing, when you send it, oh, I sent it to the third party lab. Well, great. What's under that big peak that they've squished in there? What are those little shoulders and little bumps around there? I don't know. Didn't ask, not worried about it. That's the current status of the industry until you start doing these forensics. So, I mean, Jillian, put your regulator hat on. That's who you live with every day, even though you've got a PhD in, uh, you know, behavioral science, I believe in, you know, a master's in public health. How on earth do you begin to translate this? I mean, is this even important to you as a regulator? I think the answer is yes. How do you translate this to affect policy? Well, so first of all, this has been hugely educational, and I'm I'm going to recommend that every regulator listen to this podcast because you all just broke it down in lay language, and I think that's really what's needed. This is very complex. We know we need more science like this. We meet regularly with federal agencies. We have been telling FDA we need more science like this. This forensic accounting of what is in these new compounds that are coming out is beyond the scope of what states have the capacity to do. And as you pointed out, beyond the scope of what a lot of third-party labs have the capacity to do. And it is desperately needed. I think, Nigam, you're the one that said it's years of science to understand what this means in the body. So a regulator's challenge then is to figure out are these occurring at thresholds that we need to be worried about? Are these occurring with other cannabinoids where we think there might be some reaction? And if there's any concern, you have to apply, I think the regulator perspective is you have to apply a precautionary principle. And you have to say, there's something that we could be worried about here. And until we know, we want to make sure that consumers are safe. Um, but I think regulators are going to have some other basic questions too. I hope this is the first of many studies to come from this um, track of research at Old Miss. But you know, if you synthesize your own products for Delta-8 in the lab, if Old Miss were to do this on their own to make Delta-8 and then to look at the forensics of their own Delta-8, would they get the same things? I'm really curious about that. I'm curious, was this a bad reaction? Do we think other things were added to these commercial products that they acquired? Uh that is important for regulators to understand. Could you have a pure reaction where you don't see all of these, these unknown things? Um, how common are these findings across the country? Or is this really specific to a certain location or a certain brand of products? And then more and more detail on how the findings match or don't match with the labeling. What are consumers understanding about what they're purchasing so they can try to make informed decisions? So I think this is super exciting. And I hope this is the first of many papers like this that we see from many different groups. Regulators will use them. They also need the kind of translation that you all are doing on this podcast. So the research needs to happen and the translation needs to happen for it to impact policy. And we'll, we'll need decades of research, no doubt, but even what we have, I think, is informative enough for regulators to have a better understanding of where they need to go to protect consumers. 
Wow. Thanks so much, Jillian. You know, I think if, if I throw my GMP hat on for half a second before I go to final remarks, you know, in the GMP world, especially if you're doing pharmaceutical uh, development, which is what essentially folks are doing when they're, they're combining a bunch of solvents together to, call, to form a reaction for a new product, is, you know, validating their process and making sure that, yeah, is this a fluke? Is this a one-off or is this repeated? Am I getting the same consistent results in that chromatogram? We have to do that, again, at a industry level, at a you know production level, let alone the basic research to uh, understand these foundations. And there's so many considerations that start making this exponentially complicated, right? What, did we use a different acid catalyst? Was a different grade of reagent that was used? Was it a different ratio? There's 550 molecules in this product. <clears throat> Is it a different batch of you know CBD oil that has slightly different characteristics that causes an outcome? Now, all of a sudden, we're getting really overwhelmed with what's already overwhelming scientific reality. So, um, yeah, thank you so much, Nigam, for helping us uh, distill that down. Um, you know, final thoughts, Jehan, what's your kind of takeaways as we wrap up here? Anything you want to add? I would say it is unlikely regarding any regulatory decision that cannabis and hemp will become less regulated than they already are. Um, and I think that the age we live in, we already see like the future of how things will be regulated. Uh, THC is in like three different scheduling categories and unscheduled. And some of you might be thinking, well, that's crazy. Well, it's actually par for the course. I mean, if you think about dextromorphan or codeine, it's allowed in schedule five, I believe. And if it's under a certain limit, you can buy that over the counter. But if it's like concentrated and crystalline, yeah, that's a whole other set of paperwork there to buy that, buddy. Um, so I think like we're already kind of seeing this like the future unfurl. We just want a consistent approach to assessing what additional measures need to be taken on a product. Is a product have negligible amounts of cannabinoids and you don't need to label it? Or does it have significant amounts of something that should be labeled for? Um, how do you define nothing uh, will be a great topic of interest for the, this industry to figure out. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Jehan. Um, these are all important questions that I really want to encourage anybody listening, especially if you have any sort of influence or power as an industry operator, regulator, scientist, researcher, or otherwise to, you know, start looking for solutions and coming together to collaborate. There are some brilliant people out there that can do this research. We just have to formulate the questions and prioritize um, to answer them instead of saying, this sounds too hard. That's not an excuse anymore, guys. And I, and I would say, sorry, Dave, to jump in there. I love the idea, Jillian, of having Ole Miss or another research institute like try and make some of these products in the lab. I think that would mm -hmm. be, it's a fantastic uh, idea. So um, uh, Congress, get on funding that. Set, put out a grant, NIH. Exactly. Nigam, uh, give me your takeaways. So I am going to uh, say something here. So... All the questions Jillian was asking, fantastic questions, by the way, like your list that you were just rattling off five minutes ago about all your questions off this article and how it would integrate with your work at camera and so on. I'm going to say something. We can actually figure all that out. It's not beyond the means of the skill sets of folks like myself, like Jayhan and I and like our consulting firm. And let me just say not to like you know, send you somewhere else. We're, we're happy to help, uh, through our firm, but, uh, it, there's this thing I've said on the show so many times that there's this like thing or in cannabis, there's just this urge to reinvent the wheel. 
so here's what we have. We have natural products. We have natural product that went through a singular reaction. And then we have some other products. So like there's a whole field of natural products chemistry. There's a whole field of analytical chemistry. Like all the questions you ask, Shalene, literally every single question you ask, we can answer every single one of those questions with chemistry. And we just need someone or some ones more likely who has, we've all been saying who care, right? So this is a company that wants to provide leadership in the area. This is a state like, you know, uh, mixed reviews of Colorado's efforts to have their standards lab for cannabis and all that, but, uh, props on trying, right? So there's like an example of a state doing something like that. So really my closing remark, we have the tools to answer these questions and we really just need someone to take leadership in the form of effort, especially with funding. And we can answer the questions. And you know what? I bet if you go and ask uh, Dr. El Soli, he'll say the same thing. He'll say, yeah, if you gave me a $5 million budget, five years or whatever, yeah, I can answer a bunch of Jillian's questions. And then we could have 20 more questions to dig. So um, that's kind of to, to the listeners, to uh, kind of what uh, Dave was saying. I just super agree with Dave. Um, if you want to demonstrate leadership in the space, get in touch and let's do the fundamental work to answer Jillian's questions because, because we can, it's, it's within our power. You have no idea how much I wish I could say that we have money and we can fund this, but you know, Canra is an association of government officials, but we did just put out a academic journal article about a regulator's research agenda to help advance policy. And one of the things we called for was more analytical science like this on the compounds that are coming out. Uh, and we put that out strategically to, to signal to funders of research, hey, this is what a group of regulators think is needed to advance the science. So uh, I hope that we'll get there, but that's that's really promising to hear that there is the capacity to do that if there are indeed the funds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, thank you for adding that important um, article as well, Jillian, to the end. I'll make sure we add that um, because to your points, there's a lot of important questions that need to be answered. That five years ago used to be unknown unknowns. We used to not even know the questions that needed to be asked. Now we know them. Now we know the people that can do the research. We know the answers are possible, that the methodology, the science, the technology exists. We've got one item left now, right, <laughs> to unlock this all is, and I don't think it's a single group because the industry is, nobody's willing at this stage, and I understand it. If you're industry, no single person is willing to put their head up, their neck out there and lead this and take on that risk, but they can come together. We can all come together and <clears throat> prioritize triaging these problems, finding independent, credible academic research and, you know, contract research organizations to conduct the work, collect collect the data and translate into solutions that can be used in standards and policy decisions to protect consumers and your business. This is not impossible anymore. So I guess that's my plug. If uh, anybody learned anything today, it's that we have the ability to do these, to have these answers uh, you know, these questions answered and let's do it. Get off your butt. There's no more excuse. Um, so with that, thank you listeners for, uh, carving out time in your day to nerd out on some great science and current events. Thank you so much, Jillian, for staying awake, um, for your super long day to be here. We really appreciated having you. It was an honor. And this is, this is really an important topic. And I, I can't wait to recommend this podcast. I learned a ton from you all. So thanks for having me. That's awesome. So I'll wrap it up with, you know, final thanks to the Marku and Aurora team. You guys, as always, for hosting this and letting me moderate. 
<clears throat> rock on. Good to see you this Friday afternoon. Um, and Joe Leonardo working behind the scenes as our trusted audio engineer. So listeners, you know, catch this and all other episodes of How to Launch an Industry on whatever podcast medium of your choice. You uh, dive into the links and research and read up because the conversation doesn't end here, right? Stay engaged, explore these issues. Um, it's only towards this truly constructive open dialogue that we're going to create that positive change. And, uh, you know, until next time, take care. Seek some knowledge, explore the uncomfortable, and challenge your ego. Don't be afraid to discuss anything. And I'm David Valancourt, and we're signing off.